Good morning, everyone. Again, my name is Nelson. Uh, one of the pastors here at Artisan. It's been a minute since I've had a chance to offer a sermon. We have COVID to thank for that in part. Um, grateful that our little family made it through, and I am really glad to be back with you today. Um, whether you're here in the room or joining via live stream. And so uh, today we find ourselves in a bit of a hinge moment in the church year. This is the last Sunday, as was said at the beginning of the season of Epiphany, and we are about to move into Lent, which officially begins this Wednesday with Ash Wednesday. And next week will be the first Sunday of Lent. So look forward to a new slide deck from Brother Zach Bulick, the new colors. And so not only is it the last week of Epiphany, today has its own special name within the liturgical calendar tradition. And the name emerges from the gospel text that Carrie read earlier from Luke chapter nine. Now I've been preaching at Artisan for over 12 years and I've never preached a sermon on this text. Which on one level is like, of course, the Bible's a really big book and 12 years is not a lot of years, like in the grand scheme of things. Um, the number of texts I haven't preached on is always going to be greater than the number that I have preached on. And that's as it should be, because one thing that the liturgical calendar tradition reminds us of is that when it comes to our engagement with scripture, as a gathered community, there are things that matter more than volume. It reminds us that quality is often more important than quantity. So according to the curators of the liturgical calendar, this text was seen as a big enough deal that it should get to name one of the 52 Sundays in the year. And so um, Transfiguration Sunday is where we are, which sits alongside several other texts that are kind of a big deal. The four Sundays of Advent leading to Christmas, Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday, Ascension Sunday, Pentecost Sunday, Trinity Sunday, and right before Advent signals the start of a new church year cycle, Christ the King Sunday, or Reign of Christ. I've preached on all those before. That's because until now, and you who are brand new to Artisan wouldn't know this yet, Artisan has always been a liturgically adjacent or sympathetic community since day one. But we have dipped in and out of the liturgical year over the years, emphasizing different seasons and Sundays as we see fit. This time, however, we are in it for the long haul. All of year C, 2022, which means Transfiguration Sunday is finally having its day. Now, why this long intro? I promise you, <laughs> I'm getting to a larger point because one of the many gifts offered to us through the liturgical calendar and the lectionary texts that guide us through the seasons is that it helps keep us from becoming biblicists instead of Christians. What do I mean by that? Well, biblicism is a way of interpreting the Bible as a flat text where every verse is itself seen as the word of God, quote unquote, and holding the same level of authority as any other verse. In effect, Biblicism tries to make the Bible the head of the church. It's a modern and enduringly Protestant problem. Now to be fair, every Christian tradition in history has had its problems and blind spots. I like how one pastor explained it. Catholics err 
in seeking to give ultimate authority to the Pope, but Protestant Biblicists err in seeking to give ultimate authority to the Bible. What Christians are supposed to confess instead is that Christ alone is the head of the church. Are you with me? What was it the risen Christ said to his disciples at the end of Matthew's gospel? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Tom Wright Riley reminds us of what Jesus didn't say. All authority in heaven and on earth is going to be given unto a book you chaps are going to write. Biblicism claims that it gives final authority to scripture, but in reality, what it does is it enable the individual reader to be their own private authority, which, as history right up to our present moment has revealed, leads to all kinds of disastrous results. For example, if you're not a fan of Jesus' explicit call to an ethic of nonviolence, no problem. You can just appeal to the wars of Joshua and David and the rest of the crew to contradict the Sermon on the Mount. A flat view of scripture teaches you how to use Joshua to trump Jesus. When you read the Bible as a flat text in this way, selecting the corresponding proof text, you can get biblical endorsement for almost anything. Genocide, the ownership of women as property, slavery, just to name a few. One of the chief problems, says Brian Zond, of Biblicism is that it fails to make the vital distinction between the Bible and Christianity. Christian faith is a living tree rooted in the soil of scripture. We cannot remove the tree from the soil in which it is rooted and expect it to survive. But neither are we to think that the tree and the soil are the same thing. They are not. Put simply, the Bible and Christianity are not synonymous. Yes, they are connected, but they remain distinct. Scripture is the soil. Christian faith is the living tree. Yes, brothers aunt. So, is the liturgical calendar authoritative? It is not. Does it have its blind spots as well? I think it does. But one of its primary benefits is that because it's centered on the Jesus story, it helps anchor us in and draw life and wisdom and nourishment and counsel from the scriptures that ought to be given more weight. Yeah? So I wanted to spend a few minutes framing this up because I believe Biblicism is a massive, enduring, ongoing problem within the Christian faith. And because I think the liturgical year is part of the solution. As it focuses our attention, season by season, year after year, on the life of Jesus, it functions like a guardrail to keep us from becoming Biblicists instead of Christians, little Christs. Lots more could be said, but we're going to leave it there. Because friends, this is Transfiguration Sunday, and we've got a high point of scripture sermon text, scripture text that gave a whole Sunday its name. We've got an actual Transfiguration sermon to get to. You ready? Great, let's listen to some music. Not actually kidding. We're going to listen to a song. Um, as it happens, your pastor of spiritual formation is a pretty big fan of a guy called Sufjan Stevens. And as it happens, Brother Suf, this thing I just made up, wrote a song a while back called The Transfiguration. Also, as it happens, the song is awesome. So, it is about to receive five minutes of our sermon moment.
So I'm not going to put lyrics up while we listen. If you have a phone and you want to look them up, you're welcome to. If you have a Bible or Bible app, you want to check out Luke 9, 28 to 36 and notice how the song lyrics compare with the gospel text itself. Have at it. You may just prefer to close your eyes and notice what you notice. I'm going to sit right here. And DJ Luke, are you ready to pump up the jam? Let's have a listen. Enjoy. Face of God covered 
symbolism spanning generations and traditions, key figures and significant moments in salvation history converging in yet another mountaintop moment. Time, space, eternity coming together and meeting in the transfigured one as his clothes shone brightly before this little inner circle of disciples. But guys, even with the strobe lights, sound effects, and gate crashers, these three almost missed it. The dazzling, as well as the point of the conversation. Then Peter spoke to make of them a tabernacle place. Well, they'd already failed to understand Jesus when he said in verse 22 that he would suffer, be rejected, be killed, and then raised on the third day. Now here they were, eyes heavy with sleepiness on the mountaintop. They weren't even awake enough to see what we're now seeing. The law and the prophets in conversation with Christ, their embodied human perfection, but that's what it was. When the disciples finally woke up, they were amazed. They saw his glory. And then Peter attempts to say words. So close. I picture him scrambling to his feet, somewhat embarrassed, just trying to be helpful, save face somehow. Peter offers to build shelters, booths, or tabernacles in the tradition of the Jewish feast. One each for Jesus, for Moses, and Elijah. It's a brilliant plan in his mind, just waking up. Then in brackets, right there at the end of verse 33, it says, he did not know what he was saying. To most of our ears, this reads as a comical moment, Luke doing a bit of stand-up. And the humor is only heightened by the words spoken out of the cloud. This is my son, listen to him. The only thing missing is a giant cosmic hand reaching down to give Peter a good slap upside the head. Of course, that's not what happened, but what did happen? A cloud appeared in glory as an accolade. They fell on the ground, a voice arrived. The voice of God, the face of God covered in a cloud. So an illuminated cloud descends on the mountaintop. The same cloud that descends on Sinai when God gives the law to Moses. The same cloud that follows and protects the children of Israel in the wilderness. The same cloud that fills the temple when Isaiah, Isaiah sees the Lord in a vision high and lifted up. The cloud is the spirit. What he said to them, the voice of God, the most beloved son, consider what he says to you. Oh, that's my favorite line in the whole song. Consider what's to come. Here on the mountaintop, from deep inside this light radiant cloud comes the voice of the father. This is my son whom I've chosen. Listen to him. And then verse 36 makes it clear that when the voice had spoken, only Jesus was left. Moses and Elijah fade from view. And we take this as symbolic also. We who thou are left, heed the Father's voice, and we only read the law and the prophets, and indeed the whole of our sacred text in light of this human who is God. We read everything in scripture, all of it, through a Jesus-centered lens. Now, some of us might be wondering, what about the rest of the Trinity? Isn't God three persons? Don't we also read through a spirit-centered lens? Yeah, sure. But as we do, 
It quickly becomes apparent, rather quickly, that the Spirit always blows us toward Jesus. What about the Father? Well, did you know that the Father only actually speaks twice in the entire New Testament? One of them is at Jesus' baptism, and the other is right here. Both times, what does he say? This is my son, beloved, chosen, listen to him. Well, someone put it, the Father isn't on vacation, but he always points us toward the Logos, the living word who was with God and was God. It's also kind of cool, I think, that both occasions where the Father speaks act like bookends to the season of Epiphany, begins with Jesus' baptism, and ends here in the Transfiguration. One more quote from Brother Zond. Jesus is the true and living word of God. Jesus is what the law and prophets point toward and bow to. Jesus is what the Old Testament was trying to say but could never fully articulate. Jesus is the perfect word of God in the form of a human life. God couldn't say all he wanted to say in the form of a book. So he said it in the form of Jesus. Jesus is what God has to say. Whew, amen. This truth is the heart of the transfiguration story. I gotta share a bit more from Ken Tanner and then we're gonna consider an invitation together. Ken Tanner who has preached many transfiguration sermons. And so it's just such gorgeous language. So I'm gonna read it slowly, invite us to listen and then we're gonna call us to an invitation. He said, the scriptures are veiled for those who don't begin their experience and witness of God with Mary's son. With the one who the people of God rejected for a criminal, the one who dines with sinners, who touches the unclean, the one who never kills or destroys. This transfigured one who instead raises the dead and rebuilds the world. Jesus is the human God intends from the beginning. And therefore, he is the truest self of every human, not our ancestor Adam. Pride is not your truest self. I wanna look all around the room and say this. Pride is not your truest self. Humility is what you were meant to embody. Hate is not the essence of your person. Love is what you forever are. You were made to incarnate the divine disposition that Jesus reveals, one of service to every creature in this grand and beautiful cosmos he loves more than his own life. Whew. This moment on the mountain reveals the truth about every person and that truth is that the sacred life of Jesus is now the measure and the meaning of human nature. This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. Here's the invitation then for us. Question to ponder. What does it mean to listen to the son? few reflections. You may want to take this question and be with it for a while. I'll offer a few of my own thoughts. I think for one thing, it means having the humility to recognize that we're all Peter 
and James and John. We are all one dozing off asleep to ourselves, others and God moment away from missing Jesus. We're all sinful and frail. We are all to one degree or another lost in the cloud, as Sufyan sang it. Now that's a sermon in itself. We can never be separated from the cloud who is the spirit, but we sometimes kind of lose our bearing. But that's another time. And yet, despite our frailty, our imperfection, even in our weakness, Jesus invites us to join him. It's no surprise that these guys are gonna fall asleep. Come on up anyway, I want you to see something. To walk up the mountain with him to pray, you and I, despite our always imperfect attempts to love and be loved, are still included in the conversation. We're invited into the ongoing eternal discussion that is the divine life of Father, Son, and Spirit, author, word, and translator. So to listen to the Son is first of all to accept that invitation again and again and again. A voice, have no fear, we draw near. Listening to Jesus also means being willing to go back down the mountain. Mardi Gras has to come to an end. It looks like eyes and ears and hearts in imperfect communities being open to the pain and suffering and injustice and violence going on in the world, whether it's close or far away. It means standing with those being abused and mistreated and senselessly killed in prayerful solidarity and protest, giving ourselves as God grants energy and capacity to the work of peacemaking and the pursuit of justice. To listen to the sun also means a willingness to hear and receive words of challenge or correction. For Luke, the voice of the chosen son almost always turns our dominant cultural values on their heads. Almost always. Sufian's lyric, consider what he says to you. Are there voices we need to block out so we can listen better? To what voices should we listen to instead? Are we paying attention to the voices of marginalized bodies? What about those in trouble, distress? Voices that challenge the status quo of comfort and familiarity. This is my son, my chosen, listen to him. Invite us to hold a brief silence together um, and reflect on this follow-up question. As we practice listening to Jesus, what grace might we encounter that we cannot now imagine? As we practice listening to Jesus, what grace might we encounter that we cannot now imagine? A brief silence, and offer a short prayer written for Transfiguration Sunday um, by someone who went to Regent years ago, and I just dug this up, and it fit for today. Then I'm going to invite us to the Lord's table. So let's hold stillness together, reflect on this, and we'll keep going.
Jesus, the road ahead is hard. You will be beaten and stretched out on a cross, your body broken for us. We will scatter like sheep without a shepherd. But today we look upon your glory and wonder. You frighten us. And yet as we catch a glimpse of who you are, may that vision sustain us in the day of trouble. Father, teach us to listen to your beloved Son. Help us to trust. Help us to see. Help us to follow with eyes wide open. Amen.